0: Just call Royal Air.
1: The hot weather is here and it's not going away anytime soon. If your AC unit is on its last legs, a brand new Lennox air conditioner from Royal Air can save you from sweltering the rest of the summer. Beat the heat now and have a certified Royal Air technician inspect your unit and talk to you about your specific cooling needs or about replacing it with a brand new Lennox unit. Call Royal Air today at 899-9999.
0: Welcome to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm happy to be with you on a nice Chico afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to spend part of your day with me. I'm always hoping to educate, entertain. I'm always that second opinion, that other voice on, the, on your other shoulder. I'm here to help you with whatever you need financially, uh, income tax wise, Just to get up to speed, it was a very, very busy tax season for CPAs like myself. It turns out that uh, we had just all kinds of new issues. It was interesting, the other day I got a call from a fellow CPA that I didn't know. He was down in the Sacramento region. And he called me and said, hey, I have a client here who moved here and they had a campfire loss. And I figured you would probably have some experience with that. So that was kind of nice. I got to know know a new colleague. He's down in the, I think he's in the Roseville area. And I was able to help him, kind of point him to the things that I researched to make sure I get it just right. There's so many twists and turns. I've talked about this before. I won't belabor it today. There's so many twists and turns with fires because It works like a sale, but you have all kinds of alternatives because it's what they call an involuntary conversion. In other words, you didn't choose to, quote, sell your property to the insurance company, in essence. So it's just a real weird situation, and it's real interesting that it's sort of over, but it's not over because there's still people dealing with their insurance amounts. There's people now that need to replace property if they made Gains from the insurance on business property, especially, they need to replace it. Usually, gains on the home, most people are replacing that I've talked to, but some won't. And they may or may not need to replace the home, depending on their home sale gain and all the tax free gains the law allows you when you sell your principal residence. So, it's been a real interesting, interesting season. I'm glad the actual tax season's behind us, but there's still lots of work to do. It's still a, a real interesting situation here. So I like to keep you posted on the news that I read and the business things that I'm interested in reading about. I didn't find a lot of local things today that are pressing on me. I try to look up local stories, but I didn't see anything that got me all all excited for that. So I went, I spread out a little bit, and I went to the California-style news. And actually, this was in the Enterprise Record, published, that would have been last Thursday. It's actually from the Bay Area News Group. And the title of the article is, Feds Officially Take Back Nearly $1 Billion for California High-Speed Rail. Then the subtitle says, The Funding Rollback Puts the Whole Project in Jeopardy. Well, in my opinion, they're almost every article that discusses something that the federal government is doing these days to California, almost every article I've read slants it towards, Oh, they're punishing California because they're, you know, they don't want California to elect the Democrat, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, like I say, business buzz tries not to be too political, but from what I've read about this high speed rail, This is not a political decision. It's a purely monetary decision. And I'm just going to read part of this article, and I'm going to just give you my opinion on what I think is going on. Citing repeated failures to meet key milestones and poor project management, federal officials on Thursday rescinded nearly $1 billion in money for California's bullet train, a move that puts the beleaguered project on even shakier ground. Governor Gassam Gavin Newsom quickly shot back, calling the move illegal and a direct assault on California. And he goes on to say, just as we have seen from the Trump administration's attacks on our clean air standards, our immigrant communities, and in countless other areas, the Trump administration is trying to exact political retribution on our state, Newsom said Thursday in a statement. This is California's money appropriated by Congress, and we will vigorously defend it in court. The state's High-Speed Rail Authority was counting on the $928 million in federal funds to complete 119 miles of tracks and related infrastructure in the Central Valley from just north of Bakersfield to Madera. It needs to finish construction on that segment by 2022 or it will risk having to pay back another $2.5 billion. What I do know about this is, is based on what I know, is this. The original plan for this high-speed rail was going to connect San Francisco to Los Angeles with, a, I guess, about a two-hour train ride at 220 miles an hour or something. And that was the original goal. I believe that the overruns and the costs are so high that They're limited now to just sort of completing part that they finished in the middle, and I know it's not finished, but honestly, what economic good would a high-speed rail between Madeira and Bakersfield be? That doesn't really meet what they were trying to do. I'm not an expert on this subject. I wish I knew more about it, but I will say that based on what I do know, the entire thing was a complete boondoggle. It was going to be overrun by the budget was going to be overrun by billions of dollars, and I I thought Gavin Newsom came in and said we're not even going to try to connect San Francisco to Los Angeles. But now he's complaining that they're pulling a billion out of this to complete the Madeira to Bakersfield. I uh, drive down Highway 99. A decent amount. And Madeira to Bakersfield, that's not even a big deal. I don't see where anybody needs a high speed rail to go from that from those two between those two communities. In my opinion, it was a waste of money to even consider the rail in the first place, knowing that it would likely overextend the optimistic budgets they always start with on things like this. I don't think A multi-billion dollar rail that connects Madeira to Bakersfield is going to help anybody. Except the people who are building the railroad. And the brother-in-law who's in the finance department of some bank helping them fund it with the bonds. Someone's always making money, but it's just really a shame that that thing even started, in my opinion. I do fly also from, I end up flying from Sacramento to Southern California a decent amount. To be honest, the fares are reasonable. It's usually somewhere between 60 and and $100 to fly all the way from Sacramento to a Southern California airport. So I'm not sure what the point of a rail that would take twice as long. I'm just not sure what the point was on that. But, of course, this is business buzz, and I'm just bringing up business stories. Of course, I've got my opinion on them. You may have a different opinion, and I'm not saying I'm right. One of my favorite lines from Course in Miracles is, would you rather be right or be happy? So I don't even care if I'm right, but I do like to share my opinions. Needing to be right is one of those bigger problems that we have all day long, but I'll I'll get to that later in the hour. For now, I want to stick to the business side of things. So the other interesting business that I wanted to bring up today just for for kicks, and it's sort of a hi- historical thing that I could talk about because I kind of enjoy history. There is a book published about 70 years ago. I'm reading from a review by a man named Paul Lappin, L-A-P-P-E-N, and I've heard about this book Excuse me, I've never been able to actually, I haven't read the whole thing, but I was, wanted to find a synopsis so I could share this book with you if you're interested in business at all. And this would be The Business of War. because From what I can see, it's probably the biggest business in the history of the world. And this book is called War is a Racket. And it was a short, small book written by a guy named Smedley Butler. And he was a Marine Brigadier General. So I'm just going to read part of this little review and give you a little background on this interesting book. The pieces that make up this book were first published about 70 years ago. Butler was a highly decorated Marine Brigadier General who was involved in many military expeditions in the early 20th century to countries like Haiti, China, and Cuba. After retiring, he exposed a corporate fascist plot to seize the White House right after Franklin Roosevelt became president. After that, he began to speak out about the real motives behind America's military actions, profit. Just before World War I, the profit margin of the average American corporation was in the single digits, 6%, 8%, perhaps 10% profit yearly. Then why, when the war came, Did that same profit margin skyrocket to hundreds or even thousands of percent? The author also mentions several cases of companies who sold the U.S. totally useless items. One company sold Uncle Sam 12 dozen 48-inch wrenches. The problem is that there was only one nut large enough for those wrenches. It holds the turbines at Niagara Falls. The wrenches were put on freight cars and sent all around America to try to find a use for them. When the war ended, the wrench maker was about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. The parallels with today are too numerous to mention. Now, this is the interesting part. And remember, I'm, I, have a, I have one child who was male. He's grown up now. This is the other interesting part of this review. The next time war is declared and conscription is on the horizon, and I think everybody realizes the word conscription means a draft. The next time war is declared and conscription, conscription, sorry, that's a weird word, conscription is on the horizon. Butler proposes a limited national plebiscite on whether or not America should go to war, but the voting should be limited only to those of conscription age those who will do the actual fighting and dying. Also, one month before anyone is conscripted or drafted, all of American business and industry that profits from war should be conscripted, from weapons makers to international banks to uniform makers. All employees of those companies, from the CEO down to the assembly line worker, should have their salary cut to equal the base pay of the soldier who is fighting and dying to improve their bottom line. Let's see how long the war fever lasts. Also, go to a veteran's hospital to see the real aftermath of war. Then this reviewer says, uh, This isn't so much an anti-war book as it is an isolationist book. The separate pieces were published in a time when many Americans felt that getting involved in another European war that had nothing to do with America was a terrible idea. The author certainly pulls no punches. And this reviewer recommends the book very highly, and uh, I have yet to read the whole thing. It's not a long book, but I've read quite a bit about it. And it's interesting that I believe that Smedley Butler was one of the, one of the more highly decorated people at the time that he came out with that. And, uh, I mean, this isn't just some irate corporal who got upset that he didn't make sergeant. This is actually a decorated guy and it's just, it's very interesting that 70 years ago, a book like that came out and nobody told, nobody told me about it. I had to find it for myself. Actually, I'm looking that up. He was born in 1881, died in 1940. And he was a Marine Corps major general, the highest rank authorized at that time. And at the time of his death, the most decorated Marine in U S history During his 34-year career as a Marine, he participated in military actions in the Philippines, China, in Central America, and the Caribbean during the Banana Wars, and France in World War I. Butler later became an outspoken critic of U.S. wars and their consequences. He also exposed an alleged plan to overthrow the U.S. government. So I'd I'd say he's a guy worth reading about. He was born in uh, Pennsylvania, and he only lived to be 58 years old. But it's a a pretty interesting thing when you hear the most highly decorated Marine in the whole country coming out and writing a book called War is a Racket. Very interesting. So I'll be back after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. We'll have more business news and lots of education and hopefully some entertainment too. I'll be right back.
2: You know, many women fall victim to breast cancer. If detected early, though, steps can be taken toward the prevention and treatment of this silent predator. So, schedule your mammogram and have a checkup today. It just may save your life. This message from Priya Indian Cuisine in Chico. They're serving up the best Indian food in town, hands down. Lunch buffet and more, so, stop by Priya Indian Cuisine at 2574 Esplanade, or dial 530-899-1055. They're open from 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. and from 5 to 9.
0: of Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I want to mention that I always offer a free consultation. It might be over the phone, it might be in person, depending on what we need. But I'm available at 895-3353. May and June are the couple of slower months. I always have lots of work, but they're a little slower because the main tax season's over and the Business and extension tax season hasn't really got cranking too much until August picks up and then August, September, and October get real busy till October 15 and then it drops off again and then we have to get ready for the next tax season. At least the next tax season doesn't have a new law like the previous tax season did. That was It was really that between the new law and the fire. That's probably the hardest tax season I've had in a long, long time. But I'm up for the job. Doesn't bother me. I'm, st- I'm still standing, as they say. So the next article I wanted to share with you, and this is more in the education realm. I don't want to bore you with education, but I think it's fascinating to learn things that they should have taught us in high school, but they didn't. They somehow forgot to mention these things. And this is an article from August of 2016, by a man named Stephen Thomas Kirshner, K-I-R-S-C-H-N-E-R. I I want to give credit where credit's due. And the article is called The Truth About the Federal Reserve. And it's from a website called medium.com. So if you want to look up the whole thing and see the pictures that I'm looking at, I'm sure it's easy to find if you search it on the internet there. But I want to educate everybody because most people have no clue what the Federal Reserve is. I'm going to begin reading. I thought I would take the time to write about the Federal Reserve, our nation's central bank. It amazes me how many people don't even know about its existence, which is scary considering the power it wields. This is the institution that controls our money, decides how much of it there is, and where it goes tremendous power to have. The Federal Reserve isn't even really federal. It's a privately run bank, although its head is appointed by the president. Although the Fed is required to periodically meet with Congress, it is one of the most, if not the most, secretive organizations in our country. It has been said that the Congress is more aware of what the CIA does than the Fed. So why does the Fed exist in the first place? What is its purpose? Let's go back in time. When this country was first founded, there was a heated debate as to whether a central bank was necessary for the nation's economy. It was also debated as to whether or not it was constitutional. Alexander Hamilton, first Secretary of the Treasury and leader of the Federalist Party, was the one pushing for it. Thomas Jefferson, leader of the Democrat-Republicans and first Secretary of State, was strongly against it. Hamilton's argument was this. The government needed to consolidate its debts accrued during the Revolutionary War, which would increase the authority of the central government. If the states were indebted to a consolidated power, thus demonstrating that the government was indeed legitimate, other countries would feel more inclined to lend to the United States. Then government bonds could be issued to foreign countries, which would encourage economic growth. Now I'll make a little note here. That here we go. This is where debt debt always plays a big role when the, these banks start working their magic. I'm going to continue to uh, read from this article. For those of you who don't know how bond works, here's a quick example. I buy a government bond for one thousand dollars. At some point in the future, depending on the terms, the government will pay me back more money. Say twelve hundred the idea being that the government has money to spend today and as the country develops and the government collects more revenue, the principal of the thousand dollars as well as the interest will be paid back. If it works right, it's a win-win. Hamilton also argued that the bank was constitutional on the grounds that it fit the descriptions of the constitution's general welfare and the necessary and proper clauses. Here was Jefferson's argument. The bank was unconstitutional. The constant... Constitution says, and many don't know this, that, quote, the Congress shall have power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. So technically, our Fed today is unconstitutional. Jefferson worried that if a monopoly power to control the currency was placed in the hands of a private organization, this would give them power to influence elections, it would open up the U.S. to foreign interests, and it would create economic instability. Jefferson had seen this happen with the Bank of England across the sea. In regards to the two clauses above, Jefferson argued that Congress could do what is needed to do without a central bank, so establishing one would be both unnecessary and problematic. President Washington asked Hamilton to write a response to Jefferson and his party on regards to the constitutionality of the bank. Hamilton wrote his opinion as to the constitutionality of the bank of the United States as a response. The basic gist of the writing was that Jefferson didn't understand what was necessary and that a central bank was in the interest of the public good, a recurring theme in much of Hamilton's writing. For those interested, there is a clip from the HBO series, John Adams, where Hamilton and Jefferson discuss this. So you could also look up on YouTube probably and, Find that on, uh, on a clip from an HBO series. I'm going to continue. Washington signed the first bank of the United States into law in 1791. He agreed to this on the grounds that the District of Columbia was expanded in order to be closer to his Mount Vernon estate, most likely with the intention of increasing his property value. The bank was given a 20-year renewable charter. The bank expanded its money supply rapidly, producing millions of dollars. Now, here's where I want you to pay attention on this story that I'm reading. I'll continue. The bank expanded its money supply rapidly, producing millions of dollars. This led to a 72% rise in prices across the board from 1791 to 1796. That is the true definition of inflation. Today, we are told that inflation is a rise in prices. However, the rising prices are a consequence of the expansion of the money supply. Real wealth means goods and services. Printing more money just causes the money to lose its value, which is very damaging, especially to the poor. I will write more on this later. Congress allowed the bank's charter to lapse as scheduled in 1811. However, the government created the second bank of the United States in 1817 after the country was forced to deal with the aftermath of the financial problems caused by the War of 1812. Although President James Madison had been against the first bank, he saw this one as sort of a necessary evil, chiefly because his administration was in charge of paying for the war. The new bank, now remember, this is the second bank of the U.S. The new bank once again created the usual problem, excessively expanding the supply of money and credit. Several states tried to keep the bank from opening branches by taxing it out of existence in those places. This time there was an additional problem. The second bank of the United States suspended specie payment, S P E C I E. Specie refers to precious metals. Specie payment is the ability of a bank to redeem paper currency in exchange for gold and or silver. Hmm, interesting. Since the time the country was founded, banks held paper money, but they were required to hold both silver and gold. Many people, including myself, have misunderstood this. It's not that the metals back the money. It's that the money is a measurement of the amount of precious metal. For example, $20.67 was made the equivalent of one ounce of gold. These precious metals were chosen because they have universal value, and it showed that the U.S. currency was indeed a legitimate currency on the world market. It also prevented the banks from inflating their supply of paper money too much since they would need a corresponding amount of specie, or remember gold and silver. This helped stabilize prices and corresponding amount of specie. This helped and restrain what the government could spend. The founders learned the mistake of pure fiat money, that is money issued on a whim with no corresponding specie during the Revolutionary War. Money was printed at will to pay for the war, and it was absolutely worthless by the end. Here are some numbers for the Second Bank of the United States. By 1818, the bank lent out about $23 million, but had only about $2.3 million worth of gold and silver in its vaults. This led to a temporary real estate boom. Sound familiar? As people speculated in buying land out west and investing in canals, turnpikes, farm improvements, etc. Due to the expansion of the money supply, prices also shot up by about 55%. Many of the loans defaulted, the amount of specie wasn't available to redeem the paper, and the general lack of confidence in the banks became the th- These things caused a contraction. This was America's first depression, the Panic of 1819. For the first time in American history, there was large-scale unemployment in major cities. Philadelphia, for example, saw the number of people in manufacturing go down from 9,700 to 2,100. Many even resorted to bartering to get by. The panic abated after about two years. We're coming up on that second break at the bottom of the hour. Thanks for being with me. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We're going to get back to some more entertaining education, is what I'm going to call it, right after these messages. So don't go anywhere.
2: Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised Word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the Iron Curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX.
1: Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX.
0: Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every
1: Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX.
2: When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood? Or an earthquake is destroying buildings? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. You wanted to be a teacher when you were little. But as you grew
0: up, things changed. Teaching just didn't seem like the best option anymore. So you decided to become something else. But what would your 12-year-old self say? Interesting and innovative things are happening in teaching today. So it's time to put it back on your list. Don't try to convince yourself otherwise. You had it right the first time. Find out how you can make more at teach.org. Make more. Teach. Brought to you by Teach and the Ed Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm glad you have time to spend part of your afternoon with me. It's another nice Chico spring day. Always, always enjoyable. Even if it's cloudy, even if it gets a little windy, it's still a nice day. So we just got through talking about, we got up to the panic of 1819, the first depression in the U.S., and then there's a book by Murray N. Rothbard, and it shows a picture of the book in this article. It says, this is the only book that has ever been written on the Panic of 1819. And it was originally this man's dissertation paper at Columbia University. Okay, so the next subject in this uh, article I'm reading about the Federal Reserve is Andrew Jackson's Bank War. The next president to take on the central bank would be Andrew Jackson, elected in 1829. He called the bank a hydra-headed monster. Because he was aware of the way it manipulated elections and opened the U.S. up to foreign interests. Jackson hated banks in general and this one the most. He even remarked to Vice President Martin Van Buren, Mr. Van Buren, the bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. Andrew Jackson is personally one of my this is the author speaking. Andrew Jackson is Andrew Jackson is personally one of my favorite presidents. He was the first commoner president the previous six having either been men born into or marrying into moneyed families. He has often been portrayed by court historians as a sort of ignorant redneck. However, he and his followers understood the value of hard money, having been schooled in David Ricardo's school of thought. For those who don't know, Ricardo is one of the classical economists who argued for free trade and that a country had to produce and sell more than others on the world markets in order to prosper. This is called comparative advantage. Ironic that Jackson's face ended up on the $20 bill, considering his desire to adhere to hard currency. Jackson also pushed for reform of the democratic process. Until he was president, voting rights were only granted to white men that had to own property. In some states, it was as much as 50 acres. During his time, this requirement was removed, and universal white male suffrage was granted. This was seen as a boon to the working class who now felt that they actually had a say in their government. Congress voted to reinstate the bank. Jackson vetoed it, including this message, which is one of my favorite quotes of all time. It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. Distinctions in society will always exist under every just government. Equality of talents, of education, or of wealth cannot be produced by human institutions. In the full enjoyment of the gifts of heaven and the fruits of superior industry, economy, and virtue, every man is equally entitled to protection by law. But when the laws undertake to add to these natural and just advantages artificial distinctions to grant titles, gratuities, and exclusive privileges to make the rich richer and the potent more powerful, the humble members of society, the farmers, mechanics, And laborers, who have neither the time nor the means of securing like favors to themselves, have a right to complain of the injustice of their government. There are no necessary evils in government. Its evils exist only in its abuses. If it would confine itself to equal protection and, as heaven does its rains, shower its favors alike on the high and the low, the rich and the poor, it would be an unqualified blessing." End quote. Congress didn't have enough votes to override the veto. his veto. The bank tried to crash the economy by curtailing lending throughout the country. This created a depression in parts of the country, but Jackson would not budge. Jackson ordered the funds withdrawn from the bank and placed in his pet banks, which were placed throughout the country. The bank was shut down and the building was sold to private interests. Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren, established the independent treasury system. This has been debated, but some economic historians, such as Peter Temin, consider this to have been the most stable banking system in the 19th century. Some complained that it restricted credit and lending too much, but I would argue the opposite. It forced the government and the people to live within their means. Quite the opposite of today, no? There were still bank failures and and bad decisions being made, but fewer and farther in between. Banks were required to stand on their own two feet, and wouldn't be bailed out if they made bad choices. The step towards nationalized banking occurred toward uh, sorry, during the Lincoln administration with the National Currency Acts. Before this time, states issued their own currencies. Lincoln also severed the dollar's tie to gold and silver in order to print money to pay for the Civil War. As expected, prices skyrocketed. This was blamed on, quote, speculators, foreigners, immigrants price gouging, greed, etc. Sound familiar? After the war ended, the country went back to a gold and silver standard. This continued until 1900, when the United States went to a pure gold standard. This was due to fluctuations in the silver market, and the fact that its competition with gold made it unstable to have money derived from both at the same time. The America of the late 19th century saw the greatest economic expansion in human history. The American economy started off the 1870s being half as large as Britain's economy and by the end was double the size of Britain's economy. So without further ado, here is the crux of this article. In 1910, a secret meeting was called on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. The participants traveled in secret and used code names. Among them were Rockefeller's man in the Senate, a J.P. Morgan senior partner, and a representative of the Rothschild family. The men here represented around 25% of the world's wealth at the time. Depending on which version of history you listen to, here's how the story goes. The Standard Court Historian The banking system was inherently unstable, and there was need for a powerful centralized control. The Federal Reserve was established in order to maintain the value of the currency and balance out the business cycle. This would prevent depressions. The belief was that with the Fed being able to inject liquidity, cash, by, the way of, by way of increasing the money supply, this would smooth things out and prevent downturns. And the author goes on like this. The version that I find far more compelling, Wall Street was weakening due to private banks in the western U.S. competing with them. They wanted to find a way to establish a cartel-style control over the financial system, so they founded the Federal Reserve under the guise as described above. For those of you that don't know, the way a cartel works is very similar to a monopoly. The only difference is that instead of one business dominating a field, in this case several businesses worked together to do it. They called it federal in order to mislead the public about who actually controlled it. Woodrow Wilson agreed to sign the Federal Reserve Act into law before even becoming president. The act was signed in the year 1913. This was accompanied by the income tax, which is enshrined in the 16th Amendment. The Fed has failed in what it it was intended to do. Before it was established, the American dollar rose 8% in value relative to the world's currencies. Since 1913, the American dollar has lost 95% of its purchasing power. Factoring that with the fact that wages for the average person haven't risen in the last 30 years or so, really makes it clear why the poor are struggling. This started with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's decision to reduce the pegging of gold from 2067 an ounce to $35 an ounce in 1933. It was finished with President Richard Nixon's decision to sever the dollar from gold altogether in 1971 and leave us with the pure fiat currency that we have today. In a truly prosperous time such as the late 19th century, the money was sound. Since it was based on gold, paper money could only be printed if the government acquired more gold. This kept prices pretty stable. As productivity increased, this put a downward pressure on prices, which enabled people to buy more with what they had. This means that real wages, the value of a wage determined by the amount of money proportionate to what can be bought, rose dramatically during this time. As prices fell, extra money could be spent and or invested elsewhere, which fueled economic growth. The population in the United States exploded due to all the immigration and eradication of diseases at the time. Yet in spite of this, there were still jobs for all. The economic pie was growing fast enough so that it could feed all mouths. Inflation has been called a hidden tax because it destroys the value of savings. If you have, say, $500 in the bank, but the government is expanding the money supply at 10% a year, that money you have in the bank is losing 10% of its value each year. If you spend that money three years later, it will buy you 30% less than it did when you first put it away. Another effect of inflation is that it hurts businesses in their forecast. If the price of everything were to rise by say 10%, that completely throws off their costing. That means they will have to raise prices and or cut back on quality of goods to make ends meet. Higher prices will lose customers and it will be harder to give raises to employees in the future. So I'm going to finish up uh, in a little bit here at the, uh, when the break's over. But I wanted you guys to be educated on the fact that we had a pretty good thing going in the late 1800s. And something came along to make that a lot different in the early 1900s. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned. I'll be right back with Business Buzz after the break. Archaeologists find the king who didn't exist. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing God's word. Yesterday, we learned that the Bible is true because it's the word of God. And there are several evidences that confirm its truth. And one of those is archaeology. Throughout history, archaeologists have scoffed at people, events, or places mentioned in the Bible. But often, they found evidence for these same people, events, or places later. Here's one example the prophet Isaiah mentions an Assyrian king named Sargon. Now, since the name wasn't found on lists of kings elsewhere, archaeologists assumed the Bible was wrong. But then they discovered Sargon's palace and an inscription mentioning the very battle Isaiah records.
1: Get equipped to defend the truth of God's Word when you go to AnswersRadio.com. And subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham by visiting AnswersRadio.com. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke.
0: Glad that you're here with me for part of your afternoon. I'm just going to summarize this article I've read about the Federal Reserve. One more paragraph, sort of two paragraphs sums it up, and I'm going to stop after this. But real quickly, our record stock market highs right now are not caused by a healthy economy, but the fact that much of the loan money goes into stocks which drive up artificially their value. This is known as asset inflation. No wealth is being created here. The numbers are just being unnaturally propped up by the money printing. The financial sector of our economy has done exceptionally well under our current system, but Main Street is being bled dry. Former Chairman Ben Bernanke expanded the Fed's balance sheet from $500 billion to over $3 trillion. Absolutely mind-blowing. Whenever you see quantitative easing in the news, that's what this is. Inflation. Just with a nicer name. I just want you to think about that whenever I talk about gold as being money insurance and the fact that you can't rely on what your money is doing in the bank or in your stock account in case the value of the dollar goes down. What's happening these days lately, uh, we're here at the first part of 2019. What's really happening lately is many countries around the world are actually selling dollar-based bonds and buying physical gold. And that's why the gold price has been so low. Uh, It's been artificially kept low so that these countries that actually own gold and are accumulating more and more gold all the time, uh, they just want to keep on doing it. Now, at some point, at some point, there's going to be some sort of, it's all going to come crashing. And the other thing about that article about the Federal Reserve and how our American economy was so good in the late 1800s. What occurs to me is this. The United States, of course, Mexico and Canada have a lot of natural resources too, but just the the location of us in North America, we have a great climate. We can grow all of our own food. We're the number one food-producing country in the world, and I think we have been for at least a couple hundred years. If we had not monkeyed with the money system and gotten into these stupid uh, foreign wars that, I mean, we can debate that also. But if you really look up some facts, you'll see that a lot of these foreign wars were started. They were started on false pretenses, I'll say. If we hadn't messed with all that and if we had have had an honest money system from the start, could you imagine what kind of powerhouse the United States would be right now? Instead of being a bankrupt, heading to third world status nation like we are, we had all that gold, all the silver. We could trade for what we needed. We had all the immigrants coming over that wanted to work hard and produce things. We had all the factories going up till about the 1970s. This whole decline has been by design, and it's just amazing. When you think about what our economy could have been like if we had have just kept out this money printing, interest bearing debt system that has taken over, it's basically taken over our whole our whole U.S. economy, and uh, I just I just really it just really bothers me the fact that we're sitting here with a dollar. That is becoming worthless with all the trillions of dollars being printed. And the one thing I'm going to remind you of that I talked about a few weeks back. The national debt is. I believe it's up to close to 22 trillion now. I know a couple of years ago when I first started doing business buzz shows, it was around 19 or 20. So it's going to double every eight years just like it's done before. What really shocked me was when I looked up the statistics of the total value of U.S. real estate. And that's, if you imagine, like when you drive through a large city and you look at all the real estate and how much money that must be worth and how much money that block must be worth and, oh, my goodness, how much money that whole city would be worth. You add up all of the value of U.S. real estate. I think I found the statistic from maybe the end of 17 or early 18 the total value was something like $37 trillion. Well, if you look at the national debt of $22 trillion, then you look at what they call the unfunded liabilities of pensions, Social Security, Medicare, all the things that have to be spent in the future. Those numbers are in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. When you think about the value of all real estate, I mean, you just drive around Chico for uh, 45 minutes and, tally up tons of nice real estate value. It doesn't even compare to this debt load that has been printed around the and the, the world debt is something like 300 trillion. I, I don't know exactly right now. So the entire system is a house of cards. It's not going to last forever. And it's, it's just really scary. So that's why I always recommend don't be complacent. Uh, do your own due diligence. Uh, I give financial entertainment. I'm not giving financial advice. In order to hold me to anything, I think you'd have to pay me. I'm just saying, and I'm not a financial plan. I'm not a certified financial planner. I'm a good second opinion person. But what I'm trying to tell you is all is not what it seems to be. And I wouldn't want you to go along and always think that your money's safe just because the bank says you have X number of dollars. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, my parents bought the house that I grew up in when I was two years old, and the price of that house was $17,000. So back then, $17,000 was worth something. Right now, you go to buy a new car, and I don't even think you can find a new car under $20,000. Uh, I'm I personally will never buy another new car again. I've I've had my share of those over the years. All I can say is your dollars are not worth what they used to be and the people who print money want you to look over here while they're doing something else over there. So, just be careful. I've got a few minutes left for today's business buzz. I'm going to get back into the business the business of your mind. And I'm going to read you a portion of my favorite book. The name of the book is called A Course in Miracles. And I'm going to read from Chapter 2, Part 7, called Cause and Effect. You may still complain about fear, but you nevertheless persist in making yourself fearful. I have already indicated that you cannot ask me to release you from fear. Now remember, this is the Holy Spirit talking via this book. I have already indicated that you cannot ask me to release you from fear. I know it does not exist, but you do not. If I intervened between your thoughts and their results, I would be tampering with a basic law of cause and effect, the most fundamental law there is. I would hardly help you if I depreciated the power of your own thinking. This would be in direct opposition to the purpose of this course. It is much more helpful to remind you that you do not guard your thoughts carefully enough. You may feel that at this point it would take a miracle to enable you to do this, which is perfectly true. You are not used to miracle-minded thinking, but you can be trained to think that way. All miracle workers need that kind of training. I cannot let you leave your mind unguarded or you will not be able to help me. Miracle working entails a full realization of the power of thought in order to avoid miscreation. Otherwise, a miracle will be necessary to set the mind itself straight, a circular process that would not foster the time collapse for which the miracle was intended. The miracle worker must have genuine respect for true cause and effect, as a necessary condition for the miracle to occur. Now remember, I've, I had to define miracles because when I first started reading this book, I, I went for a long time like, well, what's a miracle? A miracle is a thought from the right side of the correct side of your mind, that inner mind that watches the other mind think. That's what a miracle is in this book. Both miracles and fear come from thoughts. If you are not free to choose one, You would also not be free to choose the other. By choosing the miracle, you have rejected fear, if only temporarily. You have been fearful of everyone and everything. You are afraid of God, of me, and of yourself. You have misperceived or miscreated us and believe in what you have made. You would not have done this if you were not afraid of your own thoughts. The fearful must miscreate because they misperceive creation. When you miscreate, you are in pain. The cause and effect principle now becomes a real expediter, though only temporarily. Actually, cause is a term properly belonging to God, and His effect is His Son. This entails a set of cause and effect relationships totally different from those you introduce into miscreation. The fundamental conflict in this world, then, is between creation and miscreation. All fear is implicit in the second, and all love in the first. The conflict is therefore one between love and fear. It has already been said that you believe you cannot control fear because you yourself made it, and you be- your belief in it seems to render it out of your control. Yet any attempt to resolve the error through attempting the mastery of fear is useless. In fact, it asserts the power of fear by the very assumption that it need be mastered. The true resolution rests entirely on mastery through love in the interim, however, the sense of conflict is inevitable since you have placed yourself in a position where you believe in the power of what does not exist. Nothing and everything cannot coexist. To believe in one is to deny the other. Fear is really nothing and love is everything. Whenever light enters darkness, the darkness is abolished. What you believe is true for you. In this sense, the separation has occurred and to deny it is merely to use denial inappropriately. However, to concentrate on error is only a further error. The initial corrective procedure is to recognize temporarily that there is a problem, but only as an indication that immediate correction is needed. This establishes a state of mind in which the atonement can be accepted without delay. It should be emphasized, however, that ultimately no compromise is possible between everything and nothing. Time is essentially a device by which all compromise in this respect can be given up. It only seems to be abolished by degrees because time itself involves intervals that do not exist. Miscreation made this necessary as a corrective device. The statement, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life, needs only one slight correction to be meaningful in this context. He gave it to His only begotten Son. It should especially be noted that God has only one Son. If all His creations are His Son's, every one must be an integral part of the whole Sonship. The Sonship in its oneness transcends the sum of its parts. However, this is obscured as long as any of its parts is missing. That is why the conflict cannot ultimately be resolved until all the parts of the Sonship have returned. Only then can the meaning of wholeness in the true sense be understood. Any part of the sonship can believe in error or incompleteness incompleteness if he so chooses. However, if he does so, he is believing in the existence of nothingness. The correction of this error is the atonement. And what I pointed out before is that the atonement is simply the crossover from the mind that does all the thoughts the daily thoughts, to the mind that stands back and observes those daily thoughts going by and not treating them as the most important thing in the world. I have already briefly spoken about readiness, but some additional points might be helpful here. Readiness is only the prerequisite for accomplishment. The two should not be confused. As soon as a state of readiness occurs, there is usually some degree of desire to accomplish, but it is by no means necessarily undivided. The state does not imply more than a potential for a change of mind. Confidence cannot develop fully until mastery has been accomplished. We have already attempted to correct the fundamental error that fear can be mastered, and have emphasized that the only real mastery is through love. Readiness is only the beginning of confidence." You may think this implies that an enormous amount of time is necessary between readiness and mastery, but let me remind you that time and space are under my control. Okay, I'm running out of time today on Business Buzz, but that's a great starting point if you're interested in studying this, uh, this amazing book, The Course in Miracles, because all you have to do is simply switch over to that other mind, other part of your mind, and all of a sudden everything seems different, and that's the, that's the readiness part. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for spending some time with me today. I'll see you next time on Business Buzz.
2: In God we trust Our coins and currency Cry out that proclamation Let us reaffirm That powerful attitude In our daily lives And the choices we make Fellow Americans Recommit that faith and trust In Almighty God and His ways That this nation Under God Shall have a new birth Of freedom Individually and together We can make The sacrifices needed To bring God's Abundant blessings To America America Bless God
1: Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma.
2: KXX Paradise,
1: K280GL Chico, and K283AR. News this hour from townhall.com. I'm Keith Peters. The House has passed a $19.1 billion disaster relief legislation that had been stalled for days. Meanwhile, President Trump's visit to England continues this evening with a state dinner at Buckingham Palace. Queen Elizabeth says President Trump is a welcome guest. I'm delighted to welcome you and Mrs. Trump to Buckingham Palace this evening, just 12 months after our first meeting at Windsor. And President Trump offered a celebration
2: of the Queen's long reign. On behalf of all Americans, I offer a toast to the eternal friendship of our people, the vitality of our nations, and to the long-cherished and truly remarkable reign of Her Majesty the Queen. There seems
1: to be no reason for that violence that took 12 lives in Virginia Beach last Friday. Correspondent Rita Foley reports on one survivor's frightening story of the shootings. A Virginia Beach City employee who survived the deadly shooting says he was face to face with the gunman during-